Psalm 57. Let your glory be over all the earth. Be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me, for in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. He will send from heaven and save me. He will put shame him who tramples on me. Selah. God will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. My soul is in the midst of lions. I lie down among fiery beasts. The children of man whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. They set a net for my steps. My soul was bowed down. They dug a pit in my way, but they have fallen into it themselves. Selah. My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. I will sing and make melody. Awake, my glory. Awake, O harp and lyre. I will awake the dawn. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. For your steadfast love is great to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word, we pray now that you would give us fresh sight. Lord, just as you, by your Holy Spirit, have enlivened us and caused us to see where before we were blind, Lord, today we we pray that you might give us even sharper sight to see, Lord, what we've not seen in your word before. Lord, we pray that through this Psalm of David today, Lord, you would bear fruit in our lives, Lord, Fruit unto righteousness, Lord God. We pray, Father, that you would take the veil off of unbelief in all of us. Lord, even as the man said to you, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. Lord, we pray that you might grow in us faith and that we might be fruitful because that is what gives glory to your Father. We pray this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. God is faithful, amen. God loves us, amen. It's a good word, and those lines there in in that psalm that repeat themselves, you you may have heard there's a number of lines that repeat in Psalm 57, and some of them that I just find so encouraging, I find so enlivening, is that one verse that speaks of God's love and faithfulness reaching to the heavens, and I just want to, before I begin my sermon, speak off-piste, and just say to you today that God is for you and not against you. God is for you and not against you. And I just think, what better message could we hear on the first day of the week than that God is for you and not against you. His love, his steadfast love reaches to the heavens for you. His faithfulness to the skies. This psalm was written in the cave of Adullam, of course, when David fled from Saul. Saul sought his life, and David had fled from King Achish, if you remember. He had come to the gates of Gath to flee from Saul, his enemy. And of course, Gath is the place where 
Goliath the Philistine was from. David feigned madness and escaped from the hand of King Achish and fled into the wilderness of Judea and chanced upon a cave, a cave in which he took refuge. And the first five verses of this psalm are David's prayer. David's prayer from the cave of Adullam. And the last six verses of this psalm are a hymn of praise. There's David's hymn of praise from the cave of Adullam. Begins with a prayer and ends with a hymn. And there is so much to it, brothers and sisters, I don't have time to cover all of it today. So I've chosen three verses. Verses 3 to verses 6. And I've entitled this series, Hymns from Adullam's Cave. This is part two. Hymns from Adullam's Cave. Cave. I want to talk to those of you specifically today who are in the cave of Adullam in life. You are experiencing a season of regress, a season of declension, a season where you are struggling. Maybe the storms of life are particularly difficult and challenging for you right now. This is particularly for you. You will find this encouraging. And so David is singing from the cave of Adullam. He is giving us his prayer and his praise to God from what is perhaps a low point in his life. The line that we see repeated at the end of the prayer and at the end of the hymn is the same. The line goes like this. Be exalted. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be all over the earth. Let your glory be over all the earth. Hallelujah. That's the line that David chooses to end both his prayer and his hymn with. Let your glory be over all the earth. The whole theme, the whole tenor of this psalm is God's glory in David's deliverance. I want to say first that God is a God who seeks His own glory. The Christian God is a God who is actively seeking His own glorification. Psalm 46, verse 10, one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture. Be still and know that I am God. And I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Be still. How many of you need to hear that today? Be still. Quieten down your busy soul. How many of you have experienced the busyness of mind when we spend our entire working week either dealing with issues at work or dealing with challenges at home and then our phones scream to us about the next thing we need to be worried about 24-7 how many of you need to hear those two words be still be still that's my word for you today too many of us are depriving ourselves of stillness and the enemy brothers and sisters has a scheme in this whole plan of busyness. He wants to keep Christians too busy to pray. Have you ever made that excuse in your own heart? Lord, I'm too busy to pray. I'm too busy to spend a moment with you. I'm too busy to read the Scripture. I'm too busy 
to come to church. Busyness is a scheme of the devil in these days. The Lord says, be still. Stop what you're doing. Put down your phone. Now this is a word to me, just as much as it's a word to you. Put down your phone. Put down whatever it is, even if it's a good thing, put it down. Be still and know that I am God. You hear that? Know. That word in the Greek, gnosko, understand that I am God. Those two things there. This is not in my notes, but let me say to you, I believe the Lord is resting on these, these words right now. Those two commands for us in this day and age are be still and know and understand that I am God. The need of Christians to stop, to come aside, to come out of the pathway of life, to stand and be still, that's the first need. And the second need is to know God, is to know the God that you worship. You see, I believe that the busyness of life that we see in the West today has filtered into the life of Christians, so much so that very few Christians give themselves to actually knowing and understanding the God that they worship. So we have puddle-deep worship in many churches in this day and age. A puddle-deep worship, full of exuberance, full of energy, but very deep in terms of knowledge of who God really is. We're to know God. Our worship is to be drawn from the deep waters of knowledge of who God is. Theology is not boring study. That was never supposed to be the purpose of biblical study. The purpose of knowing your Bible is that you might worship God. Amen? That you might give God the praise that He's due and according to who He is. That's why in this church, I don't spend my time talking about who you are. I don't spend my time telling you your identity. I spend my time telling you who God is. Why do I do that? Because if I tell you who God is, you'll figure out who you are. If I tell you about your God, your worship will be according to who He is and not according to who you are. Be still. Stop what you're doing. Come out the busyness of life and then know your God. Be still and know that I'm God. I will be exalted among the nations. Did you hear that? I will. Not I might. Not I hope that I will be. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in all the earth. God is a God of certainty, brothers and sisters. God has not left His glory to chance. God will be glorified. And He will choose how. Did you know that? God is going to choose how He's going to be glorified. He's actually told you that in Scripture. God is choosing how He will glorify Himself. Now, is it wrong for God to seek His own glory? Is that not a little bit arrogant? Is that not a little bit prideful? Certainly, it would be prideful if I were to spend my life seeking my own glory. That would be called narcissism. If I spent my life looking to exact glory from you for myself, if you spent your life looking to seek and to establish your own glory, that would be prideful, that would be self-centered. But is it wrong for God? 
Is it wrong for God to be a God who is seeking his own glory? Because that's what he's doing. Isaiah 46, 9, he says, I am God. There is no other and there is none like me. And that's why it's okay for God. And it's actually not just okay, it's right that God should seek his own glory. Because there is none like him. Are you getting this? How many of you need to take some notes? I wonder. God seeks his own glory because there is no other being who deserves such glory. It's in the world's best interests to glorify God. How many of you know that there's no such thing as a human who worships nothing? The idea of a human that says, I don't worship anything, I don't have an object of praise, I don't believe in anything, is foolishness. Every single human being worships something because they were designed for worship. That's how they were made. And if we do not direct our worship to the one who is worthy, we'll direct our worship to some creation, some creature that is not worthy of that praise. And in so doing, we will bring ruin upon our own souls. God deserves all glory and it is right for God to seek his own glory. And he has chosen the means by which he will glorify himself, as David says in this psalm. He will save me. He will deliver me. God is glorified, David says, in his deliverance of David. This is a pattern that we see right the way through Scripture. We read the book of Exodus, don't we? And we see God choosing to glorify himself, both in the salvation of his people, in bringing out his people from slavery and bondage in the land of Egypt. That is one way in which he glorifies himself. How many of you know that the other way he glorified himself was in the destruction of Pharaoh? And his shaming of all the Egyptian gods through the curses over the land of Egypt. God will be glorified both in the salvation of a people unto himself and the destruction of all those who hate him. God will be glorified either which way. There are many people that think that the idea of judgment, the idea of God judging people and sending people to hell, many Christians think that is an embarrassing detail that is recorded in Scripture. Many Christians recoil from that. They say, God doesn't send anyone to hell. People choose to go to hell of their own accord. Now, that's a nice, pithy statement, but it is not true. I'm sad to tell you. Revelation 20:15. all those whose names were not found written in the book of life were what? Were thrown into the lake of fire. Who threw them? Who threw them, brothers and sisters? The one who sits upon the throne will throw them. God will be glorified in the salvation of you. But he'll also be glorified in the destruction of all those who hate him. John 17 tells us Jesus in his prayer 
As we've been looking in the Gospel of Mark at the final Passover supper meal, Jesus prayed this prayer found in John 17. He said, Father, I desire that they also, who you have given me, may be with me where I am. To see my glory that you've given me. Because you've loved me before the foundation of the world. God desires to save you in order that you might see and share in his glory. What is his glory? What is the glory of God? Well, that's a whole subject that we could spend 52 Sundays a year on. But to glibly try and summarize what it is, God's glory is God's highest qualities. The most cherished qualities of God and His character, His work, are displayed before His people. That is the glory of God. The kavod in Hebrew, it's weighty. There is substance to it. And we will inherit that. That's our inheritance for all time, is to enjoy the glory of God. That's what Christ said. I'm saving them that they might see my glory which you've given me. Romans 9, 22 and 23. The Apostle Paul says, What if... God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory. If you are a Christian today, if you are somebody who claims the name of Jesus, who loves Jesus, then this says you were prepared beforehand for glory. God prepared you beforehand for glory. That's the ends of his salvation. He wants to glorify himself in saving a people for himself that they could share in his glory. It's all wrapped up in his glory. Romans 11:36 for from him and through him and to him are all things to God alone be the glory. Many people will say things like, how, how is it fair that God sends anyone to hell? Now again, that's a subject we could spend weeks on. But no one seems to ask the question, how is it fair that God saves anyone? It's not fair. It's not fair that anyone should end up in heaven, spending eternity with a glorious, holy God. That's the height of unfairness. There's nothing fair in that. In God taking to Himself rebellious people who spent their lives living for themselves until they came to Christ and repented in faith. And even that repentance and faith, He gave them as a gift. You tell me that's fair. That's scandalous. That's the scandal of grace. God is not a fair God in that respect, but He is a good God. I love the story of Aslan in C.S. Lewis's line, The Witch and Wardrobe. Is he safe? No, he's not safe. But he is good. God is good. And finally, all the glory in our salvation belongs to God and God alone. Did you notice that? That in David's psalm, in his hymn of deliverance, as he sings about what God will do, 
You never once hear him say, and I thank you, Lord, that I was able to find this cave in which to hide. I thank you, Lord, for my sensibility to feign madness before the king of Gath. Lord, I thank you for my own wisdom. I thank you for the freedom of my will to choose what is best. I thank you that I am a wonderful man of God. You don't hear any of that in David's hymn. Where is all the glory going for David's deliverance? It's going upwards, isn't it? It's not going sideways. It's not going inwards. It's going upwards. God, I give you the glory. May you be glorified in all the earth. God alone receives all the glory for your salvation. Even though there were secondary and tertiary causes in David's deliverance, for example, God used David's sin. I believe that. Even David pretending madness. He lied. He misled people to think he's crazy. But God even used that silliness in David's disposition to bring about his salvation. Also, there was a secondary cause. David found a cave in which to hide. He found that cave. God didn't drop it on him. He looked for it and he found it. Because does David attribute any of the praise or glory for himself for being smart enough to find a cave? No, he says, God gave me the cave of Adullam. God provided my deliverance. David never attributes any portion of glory to his own good sense or good fortune. David understood well what was written in the book of Isaiah, even though he preceded Isaiah. I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. We're to give all the glory for our salvation to God. I believe that the longer you walk with Christ, the longer you walk with him, the more you marvel in the fact that you're saved at all. I used to be so blasé about the fact I was a Christian. It, I just never thought about it. I didn't pause to think that it was magnificent that I was saved at all. But the longer I've walked with Christ, the more I've realised what a wretch I am and how wonderful it is that God chose to save a wretch like me. And those words in the song Amazing Grace took on new life for me. I believe that's the work of the Holy Spirit, is that we marvel, just like David did, in the fact that we're saved at all. This psalm, of course, is a, a messianic psalm as well, and we'll talk about that in a moment, but let me just remind you of this, written in the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you've been saved. By grace. That word grace in the Greek comes from the word that we have for charity. For charity. By grace, by the free gift of God, you've been saved through faith, oh yes, nobody will be saved without faith. That's the condition of God's grace. You've been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It's not something you generated within yourself. It's not some natural ability that you had, contrary to much of what we hear preached in the church today. Just use your free will, choose God, no. This is not your own doing. Is it sinking in? <laughs> it's not your own doing. It's the gift of God. 
the faith that we have, even that, God has given us that as a gift, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. This is the apostolic faith, brothers and sisters. This is what Christians have believed for 2,000 years. It's only in recent days that people deny it. It's only in recent days that people begin to shift in their seats when you talk about faith being a gift of God. But it's right there in your Bibles. It's right there in the history of the church. It's the gospel. You take away that from the gospel, you don't have a gospel. All you've got is a philosophy. You get to go out into the streets and cry, Choose God! That's not what the apostles preached. It's not what Jesus preached. The gospel is repent and believe in what? In Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And even that, when you come to it, will be a gift to God. When Augustine, St. Augustine read this psalm, he saw Jesus all the way through it. He saw Jesus in every line of Psalm 57. Instead of the cave of Adullam, Augustine saw the cave of the tomb that Christ was incarcerated in for those three nights. Instead of Saul pursuing David, Augustine saw Satan and a legion of demons. And you can see it, can't you? You can see that superimposed over the text. You can see Christ's journey superimposed onto David, who of course is a type of Christ. And David cries out to God, I cry out to God most high, El Elyon, to God who fulfills all his purpose for me. In the NASB translation it says, I cry out to God who accomplishes all things for me. God fulfilled all his purposes for David, didn't he? That's what David said. He fulfilled all my purposes. And God the Father has fulfilled all his purposes in Christ Jesus. That's the good news I've got for you today. God the Father actually did fulfill all that he wanted to fulfill in your Lord Jesus Christ. Why is that important? Well, I think we have to ask the question, what was God trying to accomplish in sending his son? Did God the Father actually intend to accomplish something in sending Jesus Christ into the world? And if we know that, then we'll be able to understand what God actually accomplished. What did God fulfill? What did he secure in sending Christ? He's the God who fulfills all of his purpose, amen? Well, Jesus tells us what God the Father's purpose was. In John chapter 6, he's discussing the, the, the reality of who he was with some skeptics. And Jesus speaks to these skeptics. He says, all that the Father gives to me will come to me. Did you catch that? All that the Father gives to me the Father's going to give to the Son something. And all of those will come to him. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this, here we go, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up 
on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. So what is the will of the Father? The will of the Father is that Jesus Christ should lose none of those who the Father has given to him. God has left nothing to chance in salvation. That's the witness of Scripture. God has left nothing to chance. He's the God who fulfills all of his purposes. He's the God who accomplishes all things. He's not taking a gamble. God didn't send Jesus out into the world and just on a wing and a hope, oh, I really pray, I really hope that by me sending my only son into the world and allowing him to be put to shame and crucified by sinners, I really hope that people choose by their own free will to accept him. Because if they don't, I'll be, super, I'll be super disappointed, I'll be honest. God didn't leave anything to chance, brothers and sisters. He sent Jesus into the world to accomplish the salvation of all of his elect people. And let me tell you this, he will not fail. I can tell you that because he's God. He's the God who accomplishes all his purposes. And Jesus Christ will accomplish all of his purposes. Romans 8, 20, sorry, Romans 8, 28 and 29 is sometimes referred to as the golden chain of redemption. Did you know that? The golden chain of redemption. You can't break it. You can't break a golden chain of redemption. Listen to this. For those who he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed into the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Those who he predestined, he also called. Those who he called, he also justified. And those who he justified, he also glorified. No drop-off. Those who he predestined, he will glorify. The golden chain of redemption. No drop-off. Not some who he predestined, he will call. Not some who he called, he will justify. Not some who he justified, he'll glorify. All. All. There's lots more we could camp on and speak about here and deal with lots of questions and I'd love to get the opportunity to do that. But God is a God who fulfills his purposes. And he'll be glorified in showing mercy to you through Jesus Christ. He'll be glorified in bringing all of his chosen ones to glory. Not through their own strength, but through his. God has accomplished all things on your behalf. All things. He's accomplished victory for us. Victory over sin at the cross. He's accomplished victory for you over the flesh. Now that's a battle that you're in right now, isn't it? Every single one of you is in a day-to-day -day battle against the flesh. If you're not, then you're still dead in your sins. How do you know you're a Christian? You're in a fight. You're in a fight for your life. There are things in your life that you're trying to do battle against. As John Owen, the Puritan, said, be killing sin, let sin be, lest sin be killing you. Be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. A Christian is somebody who's engaged in warfare. They're doing battle against the flesh in the spirit. But the Bible says we have victory. The Bible says we have victory in Christ over the flesh. Isn't that good news? And that victory is in Christ. 
So if you're struggling with a sin that easily besets today, know that your victory ultimately is in him. And if you keep your eyes fixed on Christ and fixed on the gift of the Holy Spirit in you, rather than on your own will or self-determination, you will have the victory. You will have the victory over that sin. And it'll be a testimony to all those around you. He's given us victory over Satan. He's given us victory over the world. David likened his pursuers to lions, didn't he, in verse 4. He says, my soul is in the midst of lions and I lay down amid fiery beasts. Well, lions, if we think about them, we don't get them here in this country, but we can go to a zoo and see a lion, can't we? Lions are massive. You ever seen a lion up close? A full-grown male lion? We went to a zoo down in Oxfordshire once and there's a little glass perspex window and you could go face to face with a male lion. They are fearsome creatures. You don't tangle with a lion. You don't mess around with a lion. But Peter, the apostle, he actually likens the devil to a lion. He says, be sober-minded, be watchful, for your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. So the enemy, what Peter is saying is the enemy is like a fearsome lion. He's ravenous, he's hungry, he's set on your destruction. It's a foolish Christian that jokes about the devil. It's a foolish Christian that thinks they can take the devil on themselves. The only victory that we have is in God's grace and God's spirit. That's how we overcome, isn't it? By the grace of God. Because otherwise, it's quite a scary proposition. The reason we don't need to fear the lion that hunts us is because of Christ. But a Christian, a Christian is somebody who lives their life hunted, in a sense. Charles Spurgeon said, oh, let me read that. Charles Spurgeon said, if you're among lions, you'll have fellowship with Jesus and his church. Why? Because Jesus went among the lions for us. If you're among lions, you'll be driven nearer to God. How, how true is that? When you're among lions, when the enemy's coming after you, where else is there to flee but to Christ? If you're among lions, remember that God has them on a leash. Isn't that the case also? Even the devil is a pawn in God's holy plan of bringing about the redemption of a people for himself. You see, the devil thought that he had Jesus when he entered into Judas and had Judas betray him. You remember we read that in Mark's Gospel the other week. Satan entered into Judas. Why? In order that Judas would betray Jesus. And when that happened, the devil must have been clapping his hands, if he has them, and rejoicing. I've done it. I've succeeded. This is it. This is it. He's going to die. They're going to crucify him. Not understanding that he was a pawn on God's chessboard and he just got played. If you are among lions, remember that there is another lion, the lion of the tribe of Judah. We're safe when we're stood behind the lion of the tribe of Judah, aren't we? You're not safe when you're out here in front of the ranks, and you're not safe if you're out behind the ranks. You ever watched planet Earth? They love to show poor cute little animals getting eaten. 
But which are the animals that get eaten as prey? They're always those who are the weakest and those who are outside of the pack. Christian, you are safest when you are stood behind Christ. You are safest when you are in His pride. You are in danger when you refuse fellowship with the body of Christ or when you choose to go your own way. You are prey. The enemy is crafty. As David says, he sets traps. He doesn't fight fair. As David said, they lay traps before my feet. He looks to catch you out when you least suspect. So we must never give way to pridefulness. We we must never give way to the idea that we've sorted it. We've got this Christian life thing battened down. We must never give way to that because the devil sets traps that we don't see. And we need humility in the Holy Ghost to avoid those traps. But ultimately, David rejoices in his deliverance. He will deliver me. Even though I'm surrounded by lions and fiery beasts. Even though there are men with teeth like spears and arrows and tongues like swords. Did you catch that bit? Tongues like swords. The Bible speaks about the power of the tongue to do either good or evil. Proverbs 18.21 For life and death are in the power of the tongue. It just tells us how important our words truly are and how they can be a tool in the hand of God to bring joy, to bring encouragement, to bring healing to one another. Brothers and sisters, never undervalue the power of a kind word spoken to one another. Never undervalue the importance and power of a compliment or an encouragement given to another. They are powerful weapons. But equally, never underestimate the destructive power of careless words. The tongue is a powerful weapon. But David knew his deliverance was sure. David knew in his heart that God would rescue him and he knew that God would be glorified in it. And I want to say to you today that if you're putting your trust in Jesus, you can be sure of your deliverance. You can be sure he's going to be glorified in bringing you through this race, in seeing you cross the finish line. It's not a sprint, it's a marathon. This race is a marathon, it's grueling. But if you're trusting in Jesus, he will deliver you. And the words of Isaiah the prophet will be true of you, that no weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed. You shall refute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their vindication is from where? From me, declares the Lord. Salvation is of the Lord. God will be glorified in his salvation of you. And he will bring you through the finish line. Amen. Let's stand. I'm going to invite the worship team to come.
Father in heaven, we thank you that you are a God of glory. We thank you that you are a God who seeks to glorify himself. And Lord, we especially thank you that you've chosen to glorify yourself in and through us. Lord, there was a time when we were sinful, when we were just like those men with teeth like swords and spears and arrows and tongues, Lord, that were used to bring destruction. But Lord, there came a time when you caused us to see the light. And just like the Apostle Paul, the scales fell off of our eyes and we saw you for who you are. And Lord, we choose to give you all the glory today for our salvation. And my prayer today is especially for those who feel that maybe they are in a cave right now. They feel pursued by life, hunted by the enemy and the flesh and the world. Lord, my prayer for you, for those today who feel that that is them, is that they might know the surety of their deliverance. That this trial is going to work out to be a great testimony and proof of the power of God in their life. And my prayer is that you might receive all the glory for that work. In Jesus' mighty name. Amen.